yes, today's scripture reading is from, is from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, uh, 1 through 45, and I'll start and Sandy will finish, as read from the ESV. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty, or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes 
and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps his, is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's pray before we start. Father, we are thankful for this encounter that your son had with this woman. It was many years ago in a very faraway place. Lord, we are here because we know that you love to continue to have these kind of encounters with people, people like us. So we ask, Lord, that we would meet you as you have revealed yourself to us that we would know you for who you are, that we would know our need, and that we would cry out to you in that need. Lord, enlighten and illuminate and expose. Call us into the light of your grace today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Not too long ago, Jim, who gave our announcements, and I were, were talking about movies, and we were, we were talking about our, one of our favorite movies together, which is The Godfather. We both love that movie. Uh, I've seen it plenty of times. I would say, you know, in, in any of those, you know, Desert Island lists, The Godfather's always on my list of movies I'd want with me. And we were just talking, and Jim kind of set off the cuff, you know, uh, I really love the way that the director uses color in The Godfather, especially how he uses orange to kind of display when death is about to happen. And I thought, really? I didn't know that at all. Sure enough, that's exactly what happens. There's these incredible kind of themes that pop up, and color is used to expose those themes all throughout the movie. And so whenever you see orange, spoiler alert, somebody's about to die. It was so cool, actually, to be surprised in something that I had seen and talked about and loved for so long. I knew it well, but I was still surprised by it. The Bible can do the same things for us. I think many of us have been sitting in church pews or foldable chairs for a long, long time. Maybe we've had a lot of experience with the Bible. You've studied it a lot. You've read it your whole life. You've gone through it. But so oftentimes, isn't it the case that the Lord just surprises us with who He is? Jesus surprises us with who He is in this passage. He surprises a lot of the people in this passage, and he surprises his readers. Let me just encourage you as we dive in here. Let Jesus surprise you this morning. 
If you're wondering who he is, if you're investigating this morning, then let me invite you into the great surprise of this wonderful Savior who's going to reveal himself. And if you have known Jesus all your life, let me invite you into that same surprise. Let him show himself to you today. That's how we're going to look actually at John chapter 4 here is through four surprises that we see in John 4. Four surprises in John 4, okay? Let's dive into the first one. The first is really the surprising interaction that we find. John tells us that Jesus uh, has a travel problem at this time. He's trying to get from Judea to Galilee, where he's from. Judea is where he was in Jerusalem, and Galilee is in the north. Judea is in the south. But in between Judea and Galilee is Samaria, and Jesus has to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. Now, Samaria, a little background for you, is, is an in-between pl- place in more than just geography. Because about 700 years before Jesus lived, God's people in the northern part of Israel uh, had been taken captive by Assyria. And the Assyrians had come in and not only conquered them, but they had done something that they would hope would wipe out their culture completely. They had taken away many of the Israelites out of their homeland, and they had imported some other folks in there. And so what you ended up with 700 years later was a mixture of people. Interestingly, Galilee had kind of retained its, its Jewish culture and religion, but Samaria was this big mixed-up place. It was mixed up uh, racially and culturally, but most importantly, it was mixed up religiously. They had taken some of the worship of the Lord as the way he had described, but they had also mixed it with a lot of pagan religion and a lot of other things. They had set up themselves a new temple on Mount Gerizim, where they could offer sacrifices, where they could worship so that they didn't have to go to Jerusalem, which is where God had asked them to go. So Samaria was a mixed up place and Jews and Samaritans did not get along, not at all. In fact, most Jews would have actually traveled around Samaria to get to Galilee. They wouldn't have gone through it at all. I love that John says Jesus had to go through Samaria. There's a theological statement embedded in there, isn't there? We learned that, uh, that the gospel is going to spread from, from Jerusalem and Judea to the ends of the earth. Jesus is picturing that here. He has to go through Judea. He's got something, I mean, through Samaria. He's got something to do. So first of all, the surprising thing is that he meets a Samaritan, but it gets more surprising than that. Because Jesus' conversation is not just with a Samaritan, it's with a Samaritan woman. And men and women in that culture, both Jewish and Samaritan culture, would not have had public interactions with one another, uh, particularly if they didn't know each other. So a strange woman, particularly a strange foreign woman, uh, a, a respectable Jew, a man, would never actually come close to a strange foreign woman. In fact, most of the time, uh, if, if, if Jesus was there kind of alone, if any respectable Jew was alone in public and a woman would approach, usually the man would move back about 20 feet kind of give her some space, let her do her thing at the well, whatever, <coughs> excuse me, whatever she's going to do, and then she's go away, and he would be able to draw back near again. In fact, uh, they wouldn't even make eye contact, probably. Very oftentimes, Jewish men didn't even talk to their wives in public very often. It was just something that was taboo. But it goes even deeper and more surprising here, because not only is this a Samaritan and a Samaritan woman, But this is a Samaritan woman who has a checkered past. She is a a Samaritan woman with some questionable character. And we actually get a clue of that at the very beginning here. 
We're told that it's the sixth hour. That's noon. It's noon, and she's out drawing water by herself. Now, there are a couple of odd things about that. First of all, women in that time would have gone to draw water early in the day when it was cool. Just like us, we don't really want to be outside doing the work at noon because it's really hot. And they would have not only gone early in the day before the sun probably came up, but they would have gone in a group. They would have gone in a group of women for A, protection, and also for company. They're there to do these things, draw the water, bring them back to their houses. They're going to go in a group so that they can have other women around them. But guess who you don't want in your group around the well when you're making nice, polite conversation? It's the woman with the checkered past. So here's this woman, probably very intentionally, trying to stay away from all the other women in the village. Sychar is not New York City. If you've had five husbands, people know about it. Here in this small village, she is alone in the middle of the day. She is a woman who is marked in many ways by her shame. We could say that she actually even exhibits much of the religious promiscuity going on in all of Samaria. She's got it exhibited even in her life. She is a woman who's outcast from her society, and it's because of a couple of things. The real sin that she has committed in her past and the expectation of others. And when you combine the real feelings of guilt of what you've actually done, and you combine that with the expectation of the culture around you, that combination always produces shame. Now, let's just pause and say, uh, there are men and women here today who feel like this woman, who feel like they are living and carrying the weight of their past around with them everywhere. And they feel like the guilt of that past is coming in conflict with, the, conflict with the expectations of the people around them, and what they are carrying is their shame, and they are carrying it deeply. If that's you, you may actually have this thought that lingers in the back of your head that thinks, you know what, I'm the last kind of person Jesus would ever want to come to. I'm the last kind of person that Jesus would ever want to approach. Jesus would not want to have anything to do with me. But isn't it wonderfully surprising that this is exactly the person that Jesus approaches? Jesus comes, and he draws near to her, and in his weakness even, he asks her for a drink. Let's move on to the second surprise in this passage. And it's the surprise, really, of church, surprise about church. Let's let's look at verses 14 and 15 again, if we can get that up on the screen. Let me read that for us. Verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I give him, Jesus says, will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's what Jesus says, and listen how this woman responds. She says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is, I think, a really good uh, chance for us to ask the question of ourselves, why do we come to church? Why do we choose a particular church? Why do we come to church on a Sunday morning? What are we hoping to get out of it? I think that's actually kind of similar to the response from this woman. Let me, let me see if I can give it to you again. Jesus says, I have this living water that I'm going to give you. 
He's talking about the Holy Spirit, of course. I have this living water that I'm going to give you. It's going to change your life completely. And this woman says, water? That sounds like a great idea. I don't want to ever be thirsty again. If I could get that stream of water, that would be awesome, and I wouldn't have to come here all alone in the middle of the day to draw water again. That sounds like it's going to fix all of my needs. But you see how they're missing each other. She's talking only on a physical level. Jesus is talking about something completely different. She is talking really on the level of, okay, great, if you can fill all my needs, if you can give me all the stuff that I want out of life, if you can help me manage this terrible situation that I'm in, then great, sign me up. But it's really all about her, isn't it? I read a story the other day uh, about a a guy who decided to make um, a new dating app. He was really kind of frustrated with, with all the other dating apps, and so he got together with another developer, and they created this dating app. And, and this dating app has one really kind of key feature uh, in it, is that uh, there's, there's, there's one guy on the app, and it's him. And so, you know, if you swipe for more people, you just kind of get, you know, a different angle of this guy, or, or he's wearing a different outfit, or he's standing in a different place. And it's just this dude over and over and over and he said, you know, he said really there was the biggest problem with, with the other dating apps is that my face wasn't featured prominently enough. He said, you know, if life gives you lemons, you should first make lemonade and then make sure no other companies can produce or distribute their own soft drinks so that lemonade is the only game in town. That was his uh, solution to dating and dating apps. It was literally all about him. We can uh, be like that, I think, sometimes and like this woman. When Jesus comes to us with the offer of living water that never runs out, the offer of His Spirit that is actually going to change us from the inside out, to dwell in us, to work on us, and what we desire is actually Him to just manage our lives. And so the idea of church sounds great, right? If it's church that's going to make me happy. Oh, church is actually going to take away my maybe physical pain or particularly maybe my psychic pain. I'm going to be happier if I go to church. Great. Sign me up. I want to be a part of a church like that. Or how about, you know, a church that's going to just affirm all of the my loyalties, all of the things that I already think are important to me. Church is just going to affirm me all the time. Great. Sign me up for that. That sounds awesome. Or I think church is going to be the place that's going to give me all of the kind of uh, social outlets that I need, or particularly going to give them to my children. Church is going to be the place where my children get to go do something so they stay all outside, you know, out of the bad things that you know, I don't want them to do, and they get to go hang out at church all the time. Great. Sign me up for that church. That sounds awesome. But friends, Jesus is not here to manage. <laughs> he does not desire to give us everything that we want He desires, we read in the Bible, to kill us so that he can raise us to new life. That's not a fun process, but it's a beautiful process. Jesus' offer is not life management. It is living water. It is the power of his own spirit to work in our hearts and our lives and in this world that we might be changed. Are we looking for the wrong thing from Jesus? Are we looking for the, wrong, for the wrong thing in church? Is that surprising to us today? Let's move on to number three, the third uh, surprise that we find here, and it's, it's the surprise about sin. 
Let's look again at verses 16 through 18. If we can get those on the screen, I'll read them for us. Jesus says this. He says to the woman, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Yeah, I don't know if maybe that um, kind of catches y'all off guard, the way that Jesus treats this woman, because he goes straight to the heart, doesn't he? She says, here I am kind of with this open wound, and he just goes right into the wound. Uh, it, you know, it, what we would like, I think, sometimes is to see Jesus as, you know, kind of a guy that just comes and he puts his arm around her and he says, hey, it's going to be okay. Don't worry about it, you know. Buck up, little camper. You're good enough. You're smart enough. Doggone it, people like you. But that really wouldn't be loving of Jesus, would it? Think about a mother whose child comes with a big gaping wound on his leg, a wound that clearly needs stitches, and the mom says, hey, buddy, it's going to be okay. Let's just forget about that and have a good attitude. That wouldn't be loving of that mother. It would be just the opposite. Jesus is the same here. He dives into the very heart of her issue because of his love, not in spite of it. He dives into the heart of her issue because the real issue she's dealing with is her own brokenness. And it's fascinating, I think, what happens in the next few verses. We don't have to look at them. Uh, but, but in verses uh, 19 and following, what happens is that she seems to be changing the subject. In fact, a lot of commentators would say, she's kind of making a move here. Jesus says, yeah, you've got five husbands, right? And the person you live with now is not your husband. And she says, you know what? It's great that you raised that point. Let's talk about religion instead of talking about me. And of course, maybe she is doing that. Uh, that wouldn't be out of the ordinary for us, would it? Uh, as Flannery O'Connor said in one of her characters, you know, that the easiest way to avoid sin was to avoid Jesus. We can do that with religious discussions, with intellectual discussions. We can move it right into the realm of the ethereal and all up in our heads so that we don't ever have to deal with our hearts and what really matters. Maybe she's doing that. But you know, even so, she raises a pretty good point. What she says is, all right, let's talk about worship. Are we supposed to go worship on Mount Gerizim here in Samaria, or are we supposed to go worship in Jerusalem at the temple? And what she's asking is something that probably doesn't hit us immediately because when we think of worship, we think of, yeah, we get together, we sing some songs, we hear a sermon, we head back out the door and we watch a football game. But for them, worship was really mostly about getting sin taken care of. Yeah, there was teaching. Yeah, there was probably singing. Yeah, there was some fellowship going on. But what was happening in the temple it was sacrifice. You went to the temple so that you could be atoned for. You, yourself, and the people all together, the priests were there to offer sacrifice. And so what this woman is actually asking is, all right, you've exposed my sin. Now what do we do about it? Where do I go to get this sin taken care of? Am I supposed to go here, Mount Gerizim, this kind of fake temple? Am I supposed to go all the way down to Jerusalem, to that temple? What am I supposed to do? And Jesus' answer is amazing, isn't it? He says, you know, there's a time coming, and it's already here, when the answer to that question isn't a where, it's a who. And that person that's going to take care of your sin is standing in front of you. I love the way that C.S. Lewis actually describes this 
in one of the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, in, the, in the silver chair. He draws this beautiful analogy with a story of a, a young girl named Jill. Uh, she's, she's in the land of Narnia. She's very thirsty. She's been traveling, and she sees this magnificent stream, and she wants to go take a drink out of the stream, but there's a problem, is that there is a lion standing beside the stream. The lion in the story is Aslan, the Christ figure here. And let me just uh, read to you this interaction between Jill and Aslan. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off of it, the lion. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt that she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do? said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now (laughs) that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? she asked. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. And I didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Well, then I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had ever seen his stern face could do that. And her mind was suddenly made up. It was the worst thing that she had ever had to do, but she went straight to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Before she tasted it, she had been intending to make a dash away from the lion the moment she had finished. Now she realized that this would be, on the whole, the most dangerous thing of all. See, what Jesus is saying to this woman is there's no other stream. There's only what I have. There's no Mount Gerizim. There's no Jerusalem. There's no life management. There's no religion. There's no therapy. There's no running away from it. There is only me. Friends, Jesus reveals himself to us as the only one who can quench our deep thirst, who can satisfy our need, who can atone for sin, who can actually make things right. That takes us actually to the fourth surprise here, and that is actually the surprise about Jesus himself. There's a progressive revelation that's happening in this passage. Jesus is progressively little by little, showing this woman and the world around him exactly who he is. Think about this with me. He shows up and he is a man, we read, in fact, a needy man. He's marked mostly by his thirst and his exhaustion. 
And we quickly find out that he is a Jewish man, right? And that causes a problem between the two. But this woman realizes pretty early on that this is not just a Jewish man. This is a teacher of some sort. His disciples come back and they call him rabbi. But he's not just a teacher. He may be the teacher, the Messiah, the Christ. For the Samaritans, the promised Messiah would be one who would come in the line of Moses. Moses says in Deuteronomy 18 that there will be a prophet like him that will come. That was the conception of the Messiah in Samaria. The Jews were looking for one who would come in the line of David. Of course, we know that Jesus fulfills both of those, doesn't he? He is prophet. He is king. And we have seen even in the way that he talks about sin that he is priest. So we're getting this amazing revelation of who Jesus is. He is this man who is a a teacher, who is a prophet, who is even the prophet, the promised Messiah, the one who would come and actually make everything right. But we actually get the best message and the best revealing of who Jesus is embedded in a couple of little bitty words. When she says, we know that the Messiah will come, Jesus responds with this incredible phrase. He says, I who am talking to you am he. Now, first of all, it's really fun, I think, to see the way that Jesus deals with this woman. He's really cagey with the, with the Pharisees about who he is, but he's really clear here with this woman. I'm the Messiah. But it gets even better when you kind of dig into the way that the Greek is structured here, because the very first two words of that phrase are, I am. It's something, actually, that Jesus will say over and over and over in John's gospel. In fact, we're going to do, in just a few weeks, we're going to start a series on the I am statements of Jesus. And so this is the beginning of that process in John, but it actually goes backward, not just forward. Because what Jesus is referring to here is something amazing. You know, back in in Exodus chapter 3, when God called Moses, he called him out and he appeared in this burning bush. And he talks to Moses and he says, Moses, I want you to go and you to call my people, lead my people out of Egypt. I'm going to use you to take my people out of slavery and give them a new land. And Moses is confused, and he says, great, I'll go, but who do I tell them sent me? What's your name? And God says, tell them, I am sent you. And it's even embedded in the covenant name of God, Yahweh, that idea of I am, of being, is embedded even in his name. God has always been throughout the Old Testament the great I am. It has been his name. It has been his purpose. It has been who he is. And do you see what Jesus is doing here? I'm not just a man. I'm not just a teacher. I'm not just a prophet. I'm not even just the Messiah. I am the one in whom everything holds together. I am the one through whom all was created. I am the one who can give you the living water because I am the source of living water. I am. It's so good for us to just sit here at the end and ask ourselves this question. Who do we think Jesus is? Who do we think Jesus is today and in our lives? Is he just that guy that kind of gives us a good idea of what things we should do during the middle of the day? Is he that guy that we just say, yeah, I'm a Christian because it it opens some doors for us that we would like to be opened? Is Jesus just kind of somebody we're not even really sure what to do with? Or is Jesus everything? I love the way that Frederick Dale Bruner, commentator on this passage, the way that he, uh, he talks about this phrase. I'll close with this. 
He says, the first I am in a gospel full of I am's is granted to one whom most readers at the time thought was a three-time loser, a woman, a Samaritan with an irregular past. These facts should make it incontestable that Jesus' living water is indeed a free gift. The first I am of our gospel was not given to the leader Nicodemus in the previous chapter or even to one of the disciples in chapter 1 or 2 as an initiating honor. The first I am in the gospel of John is given here in chapter 4 to a questionable Samaritan woman, perhaps to dramatize the freedom and the truth of God's grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That is the Jesus that comes to us and invites us to come into the light of his grace. Let's do that today. Lord, we are thankful for your revealing yourself to us, even in surprising ways. We're grateful, Lord, that you come to people that it feels like you should never come to because that is exactly who we are. We're grateful, Lord, that you come and you give us something out of your body that we would never ask for ourselves. We're grateful, Lord, that you come and you deal with us at our heart level and our deepest needs. We're grateful, Lord, that you have come to show us exactly who you are. Lord, help us to step into the light of your grace today by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you might change our hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.